was a traveling preacher named Mordecai Ham that went into Charlotte, North Carolina in 1934 to do a citywide campaign. And one night when he gave the invitation for those who would like to accept Christ into their life, only six people responded to that invitation and Mr. Ham went home from that service thinking that it had been an absolute failure. But one of the six young men who gave their life to Christ that night was a man by the name of Billy Graham. You see, you never know what God is going to do. There's an obscure verse of scripture that's tucked away in a forgotten corner of the Old Testament. In fact, it's a message to a man who felt his work was rather insignificant and unnoticed. And here's what it says. It says, do not despise the small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. It's a simple but profound statement that God never despises small things. In fact, the most important things that God is doing in our world are often unseen and unnoticed and often unappreciated. In Genesis chapter 18, the first 15 verses is a case in point. If you read it carefully, you'll notice um, that it describes a very laid-back scene. Our story begins one afternoon as Abraham is sitting in the shade near the great trees at Mamre, and temperatures in Israel could reach over 100 degrees in the summer. And so as Abraham tries to keep cool, he notices that there are three strangers standing nearby. And at this point, the story takes on kind of a true Middle Eastern flavor. In America, if we saw three strangers standing on our front porch, we might ignore them or we might keep an eye on them. Certainly, most of us wouldn't be quick to invite them into our house. After all, they might be a threat. They might be someone casing our home. We can't be too careful these days. But in that culture and in that day, everyone gave strangers the benefit of the doubt. That's why Abraham walks over to the three men and he greets them and he bows low before them as a sign of respect. And it's all important in this story for us to see that Abraham has no idea who these three men are. And later we will discover that one of them is the Lord himself and two are angels. But he doesn't know that at this time. These uh, men don't look any different from any other traveler passing through Israel. They aren't wearing halos. They aren't uh, sporting wings. They don't look particularly heavenly. And everything Abraham does, he does because he comes from a tradition that values hospitality. He's not expecting God to drop by for dinner, but that is exactly what happens. And that in itself raises an interesting question. Why would God disguise himself? Why not appear with a great flash of light or a blast of trumpets? And the answer seems to be something along these lines. If God didn't disguise himself, no one would ever see God at all. In fact, the Bible seems to indicate that none of us could ever look at God's essence and live. And I'm keenly aware that I have no idea what God's essence really means or what that involves but we can't see God's essence. But if we could, the Bible says it would destroy us. So God disguises himself when he comes to earth. There's a second reason God disguises himself, and that is so that he can be seen by people who have eyes of faith. Jesus said a similar thing when he taught in parables, when, when he was asked why he 
taught so often in parable stories, these simple stories, it was so that unbelievers would be baffled and his followers would know exactly what he was speaking about. In a similar vein, the New Testament seems to indicate that after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus was seen by, uh, only by believers. And when we ask why, we understand that unbelievers would not appreciate the fact that he'd been raised from the dead. But there's a third reason um, that God often appears in disguise, and that brings us to the point of our text this morning. And that is so that God can test our motives. You know, after all, if we knew uh, Jesus was coming to our house for supper tonight, some of us would get up and leave right now to go home and start cleaning and getting the house ready, and we'd spend the rest of the day frantically worrying about what the menu was going to be and all those things if we were going to be entertaining the Son of God, wouldn't we? But what about if we were entertaining the neighbor next door? Would we show the same level of preparation and concern for them? In Matthew's Gospel, the 25th chapter, Jesus said that his disciples would be rewarded for visiting him in prison and giving him food and clothes and, and taking him in. And, but they asked Jesus, they said, when did we ever see you naked or hungry or thirsty or in prison? And this was Jesus' reply. He said, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. It's an old fable that goes along with this story. It's about a poor boy and his mother who sat down to dinner one night and they had a tradition of always setting an extra plate and place at the table in honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. A little while later, a ragged old man appeared at their door and he was asking for food and mother was about to send him on his way when the little boy spoke up and he said, perhaps the Lord could not come himself tonight. And so he sent this poor man as his representative. You see, something like that is happening in this story. Only the Lord didn't send a representative. He came himself to Abraham in the guise of an ordinary traveler. See, everything about these verses tells us that Abraham uh, really uh, hopped to it when it came to hospitality. He was in a rush. Listen to verses 6 and 7. So Abraham ran back to the tent, and he said to Sarah, Hurry, get three large measures of your best flour, knead it into dough, and bake some bread. And then Abraham ran out to the herd, and he chose a tender calf and gave it to his servant, who quickly prepared it. Twice it says he ran to serve his guests, and the servant hurried to make the meal. So why the rush? Well, because in that culture, hospitality was very important. It didn't matter that Abraham had no clear idea who these people were. What mattered was that he showed them the proper respect. Now, our text reveals six marks of biblical hospitality. One is initiative. He saw them and he invited them to come in. He gave, showed them honor by bowing low before them. He showed his desire. He, he gave them something to eat. He showed his sacrifice. He chose a, a, a tender choice calf from the herd for dinner that night. And he shows the speed. He hurried to serve them. And his attentiveness, he stood while they ate their dinner. 
Now, we Christians have largely forgotten uh, the goldmine of New Testament teaching on this very topic. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that a spiritual leader always practices hospitality. That's part of who we are and what we do. A spiritual leader practices hospitality. The Greek word is phyloxenia, which shows up in one form or another about 10 times in the New Testament. Philoxenia is a compound made up of two other Greek words, phylos, which means kind affection or love, and xenos, which means stranger, foreigner. So it means one who loves strangers, or translated into English, hospitality. So what else does the New Testament say about hospitality? Well, let me answer by giving you just a couple of um, key passages. The first one is Romans chapter 12, verse 13. And I invite you to read it along with me. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. This is a command of scripture. It is a non-negotiable imperative to every person who claims the name of Jesus Christ. If we are to be Christ followers, we are to sincerely practice showing love to those who are strangers among us. It's a non-optional command. The second passage is in 1 Peter 4, verse 9. Again, read it with me. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. In other words, offer hospitality without grumbling. That's crucial because it's all too easy to open our home to our family and to our close friends. But Peter isn't talking about having our pals over to watch the big game. That may be okay, but Peter's not thinking along those lines when he wrote these words. He's thinking about all those times when we show kindness to people that we don't know very well. How easy it is in those cases to kind of mumble and grumble a bit to gripe under our breath that we have to sort of put ourselves out. And when we do that, we miss the blessing that God wants us to receive. Now, we've all done that. We meet somebody, you know, and we say, hey, drop by sometime, anytime. How often do we really mean those words? So one night we're at dinner, and a knock comes at the door. Well, who can that be? We open the door, and there's those Six new people that we just met down the street. All of them standing on our front porch with big smiles. So what do we do? We smile right back and we say, good to see you. Uh, Well, would you like to come in? And all the while we kind of have our fingers crossed that they won't do it. Because often we don't mean what we say. But God knows whether we mean it or not. We aren't fooling God a bit. That's why he said our hospitality must be done without grumbling. And then the third passage offers us some very unusual encouragement about practicing hospitality, and it's Hebrews 13.2. Read it with me. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for some have done this who have entertained angels without realizing it. See, the word angels translated there is messengers, and it could mean literal angels of God, could also mean a human messenger. In this case, the writer to the Hebrews is thinking about the possibility of literal angels of God who might come to visit us. Now, in the back of his mind, I I wouldn't be surprised that he has 
this story from Genesis chapter 18, when Abraham welcomed three strangers who came to visit. And without knowing their identity, he serves them a meal. And one turned out to be the Lord himself and the other uh, two angels. And the writer is suggesting that one day that same thing just might happen to us. Now you may be thinking um, that Abraham didn't offer them such a great menu if you've read this chapter. But here's what this uh, meal might have translated into in modern times. Uh, Cottage cheese, salad, a tall glass of cool milk, fresh hot bread with homemade butter. A nice dish of Sarah's homemade preserves and hot veal cutlets, breaded, maybe even fried. Um, So why is hospitality so important for us? First, it offers a test about the practicality of our faith. It's easy to be religious uh, sometimes without being very practical, but Abraham didn't know who these men were, but he gave up and offered the best of himself, the best that he had to these people. Uh, three men. Secondly, hospitality is the best way I know of to break down barriers between people. I've seen this happen over and over again. I know people who have very little of this world's goods, but they gladly open their hearts and their homes and share what they have with other people. That's true hospitality. And then third, I think we should note that hospitality often opens doors uh, to the gospel. There are people that we can reach over a cup of coffee that we might never see in church and often the door to someone's heart opens when we open our home to them when our story as the meal draws to a close suddenly it dawns on Abraham who these people are he's been talking to the Lord he's been talking to his angels and these strange visitors have come down from heaven not just from some village down the road however the real emphasis then in the last section of this text this morning uh, is ties into Sarah's doubt. So while Abraham and God are having this conversation, Sarah is listening at the entrance to the tent. And she hears God again promise Abraham that he'll have a son about this time next year. And it's a thought that is too much for her and she begins to laugh. After all, Abraham is far too old to have a son. She's far past her childbearing years. They've already waited 24 years for God's original promise to be fulfilled. Why should this year be any different? Fundamentally, Sarah doubts God. In her mind, God has waited too long. Maybe just maybe it would have been possible 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, but not now. Once once upon a time, she believed the Lord only to have her faith dashed on the rocks of reality time and time and time again. No, she isn't falling for this old line again. A child next year? No way. That would take a real miracle. Some of you have read the comic strip Peanuts by Charles Schultz. And if you'll know that there's a recurring storyline in that uh, comic strip in which Lucy holds the football for Charlie Brown. Uh, to kick. And every time she invites him to kick the football, she's holding it and, and uh, he steps back and he runs up to the football and every time she pulls it away at the last second, causing him to fall on his backside. Only this year, Lucy solemnly promises Charlie Brown 
that this time she won't pull the ball away. And so he's encouraged. He backs up again. He takes a long run at the ball. And just as he gets ready to kick it, she pulls it away one more time. And as he lays on his back with a dazed look on his face, Lucy peers down at him and she says, Charlie Brown, your faith in human nature is an inspiration to all people. Well, in our story, Sarah is the cynic. She won't, she's not going to kick the football one more time. God has pulled it away too many times. So Sarah lies to God. When God asks, did you laugh? She flat out denies it. I didn't laugh. But why did she lie to God so brazenly? Well, the Bible says she was afraid. She was afraid she might be exposed publicly. She was afraid of what else God might uh, know about her. She was afraid of what Abraham might say to her. Probably many of us would have done what Sarah did. Better to try to cover our tracks or so we think. And so God demonstrates some tough love towards Sarah. He reads her mind. He confronts her sin. He reminds her of his power. He reaffirms his promise. And then he exposes her unbelief. But why, uh, but why do that? Why do it so publicly? Because as the mother of the nation... She's going to have an enormous influence in the nation of Israel. And before God can send Isaac into this family, he must bring her to the end of herself so that her confidence will be in God alone. I'm sure that Sarah didn't particularly appreciate God's rebuke, but it was absolutely necessary in order for God's plan to move forward. In a sense, God could not bless her until he had reprimanded her. And this event begins in Genesis 17 so that we're not going to think that Abraham and Sarah somehow just produced Isaac all on their own or that God had rewarded their great faith. What, what faith there was was not very great at this moment. Which brings us to God's ultimate argument. Is there anything too hard for God? Is there anything too hard for God? And the answer, of course, is no. No. But we need to be reminded of that fact over and over and over again. So what is faith? The most important, most famous verse in all the Bible about faith is probably Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. And one of the Greek words there in this verse actually means title deed. Faith is the title deed to the things that we do not yet possess. It's the guarantee of what one day God's going to give us. But here's another definition of faith based on Abraham's experience. Faith is believing that God will keep his promises despite any and all circumstances to the contrary. See, it's not faith in faith. It's faith in God's character. 2,000 years after Abraham lived, the Apostle Paul summarized Abraham's remarkable faith in Romans chapter 4, and he says, Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at 100 years of age he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. Abraham decided that God could do what he said he would do. And that made the difference. 
So let me ask you a question this morning. If you could ask God to do one thing for you today in the spiritual realm, what would that be? If you could ask God to do one thing for you in the spirit, whole spiritual realm, what would it be? I'm sure there's a whole list of things that we could probably pick from, things like breaking a bad habit or forgiving somebody who's hurt you or seeing a loved one come to Christ or changing your character or delivering you from discouragement or instilling in you a new enthusiasm for God or giving you power to overcome some temptation in your life, giving you a new boldness for Christ. Whatever it is, just know that it is not too hard for God. You know, every week we ask you, the congregation to, uh, who are worshiping with us, to complete the communication card, even as I did today, to let us know of your presence with us. And then on the back, if you have a prayer concern, to write that out and, so that our staff can be praying for you. And every Tuesday when we meet for a staff meeting, as we look at that list, I'm, I'm just struck by some of the uh, many needs of our people. Some of those requests are truly heartbreaking. And yet as I consider the list, you know, some days I just want to write Genesis 17, 14 at the top of the list, which says, no matter how impossible your request may seem, it's not too hard for God. Somewhere I ran across a provocative statement. It's this, the only thing that hinders God is our unbelief. The only thing that hinders God is our unbelief. You know, you have to stop and think about that for a moment because it doesn't sound right to think that anything hinders God. And in the literal sense, nothing does. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. There's no one who can stand against him. And yet in his wisdom, God has ordained that he will limit his work in this world in accordance with the faith of his people. And in that sense, it's perfectly right to say that our faith or the lack of our faith opens or closes the door to God, sometimes just ties God's hands. Billy Graham used to say that heaven is filled with answers for which no one has even bothered to ask. So let me wrap up this message this morning again with a question. What do you believe down deep in your heart? Do you believe that there's anything too hard for God? Is there anything in your life today that just seems so big that God can't handle it? You already know the answer, but I'm asking, I'll ask it in a different way. What problem in your life today seems so impossible that part of you, part of you doubts that God can really take care of it? That leads to what might be called a new insight. You know, God wants us to believe in him. Kind of shocking statement, isn't it? God wants us to believe in him. The God of the universe wants us to believe in him. He wants us to trust him. Just know that whatever problem might be in your life today, it is not too difficult for God. Thousands upon thousands of believers over the centuries have put God to the test. They've trusted him, and God has come through for them. So what about you? Are you willing to trust God with your problems? I close by reminding you once again that the most important decision that you will ever make in this life is the decision to put your life in the hands of Jesus Christ. Do you feel unworthy of God's grace? Many of us do. Well, we are. We are all unworthy of the grace of God. But the good news is 
that God loves us. And, and we look at the record of the scripture and some of the great people of the Bible, and we know that Abraham was a liar. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer. Peter denied Jesus. But they all discovered the kindness of God and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. And today, they will, are in heaven. And my question is, will you be there one day to join them? Let's pray. God, one of the things that we know for sure is that at the very root of who we are, sin has displaced the life that you intended for us. Sin changes our affections, it changes our values, it changes our heart. And only one thing severs sin's hold on our life, and that is God's kindness demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Your love is better, your love is more precious than anything we know, and your kindness overcomes sin's nasty hold on us. It is your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance, and it restores us to God and to your highest joy and greatest fulfillment. So teach us today how to trust in you and then receive your love and kindness into our lives so that we too might be changed, we pray in Christ's name.